such a privilege to be moderating today's discussion. I actually started at MPI almost 10 years ago, and one of the first big events I attended was MPI's 10th anniversary, which was held on the roof of the now defunct museum, RIP, was almost as glamorous as this. And I remember feeling then so in awe of my smart colleagues and so thrilled that I got to work at an organization that brings together a rigorous focus on evidence and scholarship with an understanding that policies need to be politically and financially and operationally viable in the real world. I still feel just as lucky now to get to work here, even when discussing the hardest issues and navigating seemingly impossible trade-offs. MPI is really a place where people think deeply, scrutinize the evidence, question assumptions, and find new ideas for solving old and new challenges. This has perhaps never been more important than as we grapple with a global pandemic that's having unpredictable and often concerning impacts on the global movement of people, including migration, riskier and costlier, and in some places more chaotic. It sometimes feels a little bit like we are moving from crisis to crisis, whether it's um, Afghan evacuation, what's happening in Belarus, or the US southern border. Um, but of course, these are happening against the backdrop of much larger shifts that govern how people move and will move in the future, including climate-related displacement and the uneven spread of economic opportunities. So this is a, a critical time to be assessing these, these questions about the kind of migration systems that we want to build for the future and the kind of governance that will support strategic thinking to get ahead of these challenges. I do feel a bit strange to have been robbed of my opportunity to introduce our two distinguished speakers, but I won't repeat the stuff you know already and I'll get stuck straight in. Um, I wanted to divide today's discussion um, a bit like the Christmas Carol into vignettes of migration past, present and future. Uh, so if I could start with the, the ancient history bit, which is Dimitri's favourite. <laughs> the two of you have known each other, I hear, for longer than the history of MPI. Um, I wanted to start with you, Antonio. What, when you look back at the last 20 years, um, What's, what's changed and what are the issues that you see come round again and again and again that countries have to grapple with? Thank you so much, Megan, and good afternoon to all of you. First of all, thank you so much for the invitation to be here for the 20th anniversary of uh, MPI. Uh, I'm particularly pleased because this is the 70th anniversary of uh, IOM this year, and uh, my age is somewhere in between. <laughs> and having said that, uh, it's very dangerous to ask a Portuguese what has happened in the last 20 years because uh, most likely you will be very fatalist and pessimist. So I will try to be a little bit unportuguese, saying that uh, with my age and my experience, I've learned that the progress is always a paradox. And uh, what has happened in these last 20 years, in my view, in migration policy is Progress, but with paradoxes. Progress because indeed today, I think, there is evidence, more than evidence, overwhelming evidence, that the, the challenges of migratory flows and to deal with migration policy cannot be coped by, by one country alone in isolation. There is a need for joint efforts because migration is a joint uh, endeavor. But being uh, uh, Two, uh, essentially human phenomena, 
you also need to constantly adapt, adapt your uh, positioning and adapt to changing realities. And if it is true that no one can cope alone with migration, I think that we have come to the conclusion in the last 30 years that there is a need of a shared responsibility in the international community. And uh, coming to the position of shared responsibility uh, concerns not only the countries of destination, but also the countries of origin. When it comes to countries of destination, it is quite clear that today uh, it, uh, it, it is evident that countries of destination have a responsibility in addressing the deep root causes of migration. But no longer as 20 years ago, where the speech about the deep root causes was something like vague and abstract. But the challenge today is to find the effective tools to translate this principle of addressing the deep root causes into concrete action. And then in that sense, there has been progress. There has also been progress in the perspective of the countries of origin. Because to a large extent, countries of origins considered that, uh, well, the fate of migrants was their problem. It was not their responsibility. And uh, progressively, countries of origin have recognized that they are also accountable before their public opinions about how they deal with the migration flows that originate in those countries of origin. And uh, the paradox lies in the fact that uh, recently, in the last 10 years probably, there is a rise in unilateralism looking to migration policy. So overwhelming evidence of shared responsibility, but on the other side, a sort of uh, escape route, or if you want, a detour from certain areas, trying to say that, well, building walls, building fences, closing the doors, that's the way we deal with migration. That's the basic uh, paradox. I see in the last uh, 20 years. And last but not least, this process is a process of uh, advancement and step backs. Uh, we can never take anything for granted. And it requires uh, strategies from both sides to build mutual confidence. And build mutual confidence is probably the most difficult thing to, to build in today's world. But uh, looking back to the 20 years, and I conclude with this, when I see that at least it has been possible for the uh, vast majority of the United Nations member states to come to an agreement with a political platform called Global Compact on Safe, Regular, and uh, Orderly Migration, that shows that uh, there is the goodwill and the political capital to build upon to consolidate. Uh, mutual trust, and to have a joint shared responsibility in terms of migratory flows. And I hope that uh, this appeal is also particularly heard in the city that uh, so generously hosts us today. Thank you so much, Antonio. And Dimitri, same question, but I challenge you to come up with anything catchier than progress with paradox. Well, what can I say? I'll start with my age, <laughs> which exceeds the history of IOM, <laughs> which is something to be proud of. So, my sense is that the last point that Antonio made, that it's two steps forward, one step 
backward and several steps sideways. <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing that it was 20 years ago, or for that matter, 30 or 40 years ago. We have tried an awful lot of things in the United States, and certainly the European um, Union. Uh, Antonio was the first ever uh, commissioner for this issue. At that time, it was called Justice and Home Affairs, is it? Am I yeah. right? Absolutely. <laughs> Justice and Home Affairs. Progress has been made. Certainly, expertise has built up enormously. A political will on the part of the European institutions has grown. It is really much higher than it was, let's say, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But at the end of the day, we continue to have the same old problems appear and sort of destroy whatever it is that we're trying to build again and again and again. So the challenges very similar. How do you basically work collaboratively, cooperatively, whatever you want to call it? Because we all know somewhere inside of us and every policymaker I talk to, and I'm sure every policymaker that Antonio talks to says, yeah, yeah, we have to work together. That's the answer. And then the but comes. But, you know, domestic politics. But look at what happened, you know, in Poland, between Poland and Belarus. Look at what is going on in the US southern border, et cetera, et cetera. It is that but that is really killing us in terms of making progress on this issue. And people like us, uh, and particularly, uh, you know, academics, you know, th think that all of those <laughs> things somehow can be, um, <laughs> can be fixed by coming up with more elegant wording and by saying more interesting things differently, but in reality, those things do not change the facts on the ground. Um, these are the challenges. The opportunities that international migration produces or creates are also the same. All along, we all know that what created this institution, the language that created this institution, which is essentially that international migration, when managed well and responsibly, can bring many more benefits for everyone, for immigrants, for immigrants and communities and the families that are left behind, for the communities in which they enter and become members of in our countries. And that these kinds of things have never changed, nor for that matter, in my estimation and talking to far too many people in the last 50 years, I will say that nothing has changed about what it is that immigrants think of immigration. They come here for the same reasons that they came 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 70 or 100 years ago, to better and improve their conditions and create better opportunities for their families, for their children. Now, things have sort of changed at the margin, but this will require a paper rather than an answer to your question. And one last thing. What it is that we don't have? Didn't have it 20 years ago, although maybe around 30 years ago when we started to get serious about the relationship with Mexico 
things were different for a few years. But we do not have the combination of courage and wisdom that is required to take on successfully, or at least more successfully than in, in the past, the more difficult issues. And this is really what is holding us back. Because increasingly in places like my country here, and in places in far too many other places, what we are experiencing is the lack of courage. So the extremes in either position can block pretty much any thoughtful action on this matter. These are the conditions that are there that we have to constantly try to do better with, to improve upon. We haven't been able to do that systematically and continuously because there has been progress, whether it's the two global compacts or at least, you know, the global compact that was more difficult, which was the migration compact. You know, I mean, the other one institutionalizes things that, you know, pretty much exist. But the ability to put together a document that I know it's full of compromises. And if you've been in this business, you know, long enough, you can see the fingerprints of which group, which individual, which country put some of these provisions in there. There is the beauty of this global compact on migration is that there is nothing new under it. But it is a single document that basically tries to make the case how we can move forward better. I'll shut up now, ma'am. <laughs> Doesn't it always require a paper? Um, so both of you painted a vision of incremental progress, the two steps forward, one step back, and perhaps a little bit of, of deja vu or old wine and new bottles for, for Dimitri. Um, but then we have the pandemic, or as I like to call it, the ghost of migration present. And um, I wanted to start with Antonio. You know, this last 18 months has seen a really unprecedented impact on human mobility in relation to border closures and just the massive scale of travel restrictions. Um, now we have vaccination requirements emerging, these complex COVID protocols. Is this a world that's reopening? And what are the implications for people on the move? Dimitri, since you're good friends, do you mind sharing your mic with Antonio, actually? Oh, getting word that your mic is a better one, actually. Uh, I'm audience, yes. Uh, so we can both project better. <laughs> well, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, I always tell this story. I read an article in a very well-known uh, uh, magazine saying, the pandemic is the end of migration. And uh, so uh, I was sitting in my office and I said, well, better start packing <laughs> <laughs> uh, and go back to this. But at least there, there is sunshine, uh, which is not the case in Geneva. But uh, uh, in, in practical terms, yes, we were confronted for an organization that is based on migration, which means movement of people. <laughs> the pandemic and the world came to a stop was totally unprecedented. <laughs> and totally unpredictable. So we had no alternative but to adapt. And uh, adapt means identifying what would be the impacts of the pandemic, uh, first in our staff, of course, in the safety of our staff. We had an enormous amount of problems, for instance, with the lockdowns, because our staff were unable to reach out to beneficiaries. We kept 
the organization to in delivering support to the beneficiaries, but at the same time, the measures that were being taken to fight the pandemic were preventing us from performing our duty. Secondly, we found a new category of migrants, what that we call stranded migrants. Migrants that were on their way both to countries of destination or migrants that were on their way back to the country of origin precisely because of the pandemic that suddenly got stuck because of the closure of the borders, because of the cancellation of the flights, because of the lockdowns, and they were in need of assistance. And thirdly, uh, we uh, realized that uh, uh, immediately after the beginning of the pandemic, there has been a drop in irregular moves. I mean, the networks, the criminal networks that operate in trafficking in human beings and in smuggling did slow down indeed, but that was just for a short period of time. They were very fast in adapting to the new situation. And due to the fact that moving regularly became almost impossible, they had there a unique opportunity to broaden their business. I always tell this story. Uh, there are figures that uh, probably are not very well known. Uh, in a conversation with uh, one head of state, head of government of the European Union, I explained to the person in question that uh, in 2019, uh, the Gulf of Aden from Djibouti to uh, Yemen, uh, in direction to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, have been crossed by 150,000 people, more than the ones that crossed the Mediterranean from uh, central, eastern and western Mediterranean. Uh, this figure uh, came to a drop significantly in uh, 2020 because of the pandemic, roughly 37,000. But what we have seen is that those migrants coming from the Horn of Africa, going to Yemen, a country at war, and a very difficult situation, trying to reach Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, being unable to reach the, the objective, they tried to come back the countries of origin, again through Yemen, again through the Gulf of Aden. And the traffickers and the smugglers cover twice because they get the payment of the way trip and then they get the payment of the way back trip. And this situation was totally new. It did not exist before. So we had to adapt to this uh, new uh, landscape, new environment which is very demanding for the future. I think we can speak about that more in detail uh, a little later. But uh, the truth is that uh, we are not reopening the world now. We should not look to the world in the perspective of the global north. Uh, in the global north, the, the vaccination rate is 62%. And even then, you see the figures on the rise in Europe very recently. But it's true that there is a smooth of restrictions and mutual recognition of certificates. I just came uh, to, to the US with my Switzerland vaccination certificate. But what I am afraid is that that's not the panorama in the vast majority of the world. In the less developed countries, the rate of vaccination is 4%. In Africa, in the entire continent, the rate of vaccination does not reach 10%. So we are not opening the world. On the contrary, we are still very much living under the pandemic and the conditionality that the pandemic imposed 
to the freedom uh, of, uh, of movement. What I'm a little bit afraid uh, is of two things. First, this, uh, this uh, opening uh, becomes an harmonic. You start opening and closing and opening and closing with a lack of predictability, lack of certainty. Uh, we never know if uh, uh, we can travel for a country according to some rules, but then the rules change. So there is a need to have a joint approach to the common rules, common standards that should be used to open up after the pandemic. And the second one is that we might be going to a two-tier, if not a three-tier mobility system worldwide. Those from the rich countries that can have vaccines uh, can travel uh, freely or more freely, and those who come from uh, less developed countries will find much more difficult to uh, move around. Not to mention that, uh, of one thing I'm certain, uh, in the future, border controls and migration systems will have to integrate uh, health proof criteria. That's quite clear. And this will require investments in infrastructures for border controls, investment in skills for border guards, and investment in skills for the migration officials. And not all countries will be on equal foot capable to deploy the necessary investments to guarantee that uh, the global mobility is developed. And uh, there is no, uh, no economic recovery, no world trade, no global recovery in the economy if there is no global The good microphone to you, sir. <laughs> um, so, um, who can disagree with what Antonio said? It, uh, it makes eminent sense. And it is highly likely, in fact, almost certain, that it will take time before we develop these common standards. After all, if you can think back to 2001, when Jim Ziegler was commissioner, Doris Meisner had just left the commissioner's office. After 9-11, it took us several years before we could agree on all the standards, common standards, that would control and manage movement, mobility. And here I like to draw a distinction between mobility and migration, because I like to talk about migration more than I like to talk about mobility, because that's what I know most, and because mobility is at least as essential as Antonio says, but there are going to be ways they suspect that, you know, this is going to be sort of be put together. The infrastructure is going to put be put together, although not in a way that will make mobility easy as easy was, as it was, you know, back in, in the old days, 2019, for instance. Okay. And, you know, trade and everything else that, you know, is very much dependent on the ability to move people, you know, uh, cargoes, etc., etc., will suffer for a while. But again, at the end of the day, I hope that the new standards that we all agree on, okay, will be able to be adapted and followed by everyone. And the most important standard is preparing ourselves for the next pandemic. 
because yeah, even if it takes an extra year to come up with the right kinds of standards, if the outcome is being much better prepared for the next pandemic, I can live with it. Now, you know, trade people might be willing to live with them with that, but this is something that we need to do. And that's extremely important to me. With regard to migration, I often get asked questions uh, about what will the, you know, post-pandemic opening look like. And being an old dog in this game, I say that very quickly, I don't know if that's six months or 18 months, it's going to look pretty much the way that it looked before all of these things started. In other words, I don't see any country adapting their immigration systems to somehow make different kinds of decisions about the migration. And countries that have already opened up, or at least have found intelligent, fast, quick, smart ways of, of you know, creating hybrid systems whereby migration, like Canada, like migration can actually happen both in person or in a hybrid sort of a way from abroad. Because all sorts of things or changes are taking place, have taken place because of the pandemic. It's now clear that many jobs don't have to be done in place. And I don't mean, you know, jobs like the MPI crew can work from home if Andrew decides that this is what they can do. I'm talking about the kinds of things that are necessary for people to be able to do their jobs from where they are. And with all of the advances in AI and technology and mechanization and all that, I have a hard time trying to figure out with how many immigrants we would need. So immigration will have to become, at least for a period of time, hybrid. People over there earning hopefully, you know, the right over time to move over here and doing jobs from their homes. And this actually is something that can make a big difference in our ability to have a migration system that continues to benefit most of the people who engage it. One last thing, I can't resist this because we're fascinating this one, yes. And I don't mean fascinated as in so happy that they're doing so well. <laughs> Everybody's talking about smuggling. In fact, a few years ago, names will not be used to protect the not so innocent. You know, the great invention of some people in the EU was to attack the smugglers, burn their boats, you know, cut off this and that and the other thing. And on this side of the Atlantic, the big innovation was, let's try to attack the smugglers. Smugglers are infinitely, infinitely, infinitely adaptable. And they can change everything, routes, method, etc., etc., on a dime. And they don't care if you die. The cargo is expendable. They collect their money. Anything, as Antonio said, under any set of circumstances, they get paid. And no country is capable 
to actually make a dent in this. Because they offer a service. Because people who are desperate, or people who are not so desperate, are stupid enough to think that somehow, let's say, think of the caravans. There is safety in numbers. Or think of the people who are trying to cross, you know, the Mediterranean. There is safety in numbers. You know what? Or we're good swimmers. Or I'll go with my three cousins and we'll help each other. In reality, people die. And they die in very large numbers. And the death rates move from the Eastern Mediterranean to the sort of Central Mediterranean, Western Mediterranean, and the last few years, some of the largest activity of illegal migration is from always a hard time from West Africa to the Canary Islands. East and West for me doesn't doesn't quite work because I don't know what's East and West and North is South. So the, the, the reality in other words is that smugglers will always be with us. Governments can never be as swift, can never adapt, and they have to follow rules. Smugglers don't have to follow rules. So the reality becomes that smugglers will be perfectly alive and well, that they will continue to, 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 make, um, you know, to make a lot of money, and that just about anything that we do trying to control the uh, unauthorized movement of people plays precisely into making smugglers uh, richer. And that is the reality. Now, some people may take the lesson from that reality that, well, you know, maybe we should have a good time, relax, and let people come in. That's how governments lose their money, their, their jobs, and that's how social revolutions in small letters rather than large letters begin to happen. And now, since all of our countries are highly divided, our countries is the advanced industrial world, so divided over this issue. The idea that somehow we can bring into our countries most of the people who make it to our borders is actually um, I'm trying to find a, a you know a soft word because the word that comes to my to my mind is uh, is not a soft word. It, it doesn't make much sense. How is that? So working together with within neighborhoods becomes the only way to try to manage better the unauthorized movement of people. And everything that you do at the end point affects what happens with the next group. And if you don't have the clarity to understand this and act on this, then you will constantly have a crisis. Both of you talked um, about migration intermediaries and smugglers and how this might be a moment, well, <coughs> acted very flexibly and been very adaptive, but also that this might be a moment when their business model takes off. But what about the other side of irregular migration and the individual decision-making process for migrants, Antonio? What changes the individual calculus? Uh, will legal pathways ever be enough? Well, maybe I'd start by saying that illegal 
I mean, regular pathways so never put an end to uh, illegal, irregular migrations. Uh, the, the idea that there is a system of communication that if we increase one, you will decrease the other, uh, I'm, in my view, does not, does not work. <laughs> a different story is to say, if we are much more proactive in promoting regular pathways, that strengthens not just the argument to fight against irregular migration, but also that is to the benefit of those migrants who can migrate without taking the risks that irregular migration always uh, raises to them, putting in risk their lives and giving uh, opportunity for the most atrocious uh, abuses uh, of, uh, of migrants. But uh, in fact, uh, the Dimitri was raising a, a question that probably the jury is very much still out. Some jobs can be performed remotely, others cannot be performed uh, remotely. So there will always be a need to address the question of regular migration according to uh, a, a number of criteria and rules in cooperation with the countries of origin and also uh, bearing in mind that uh, there is uh, room for seasonal migration uh, in order to open up opportunities for those who are uh, looking for the improvement of their own lives. The pandemic from that point of view was very interesting. Some countries have organized uh, charter flights for seasonal migrants in order not to lose their, their crops. And so they uh, raised a, a waiver from the travel restrictions and from the closure of the borders to allow seasonal migrants to come to the crops and then go back to the countries, uh, to the countries of origin. And uh, so the flexibility in managing migratory flows will be, will go on being a crucial issue. I do not want to forget that uh, the vast majority, 60% probably, even more in some cases, of uh, migrants that are in irregular situations in countries of destination did not cross the border irregularly. They just became in an irregular situation because they have overstayed, overstayed their visas or have overstayed their authorization of stay in the countries uh, of their destination. So don't misunderstand me. I think it is very important to have efficient, smart, effective border controls. But if you start creating the idea that that, is, that that does the job, that that is enough, you will be confronted with a reality that presents you a picture that is very different. Because a substantial part of those who are in the regular situation with countries of destination would not have been stopped at the border because they crossed the border regularly. This shows that uh, uh, in the debate that we have in our societies, Migration has become a very polarized issue, a very uh, sensitive issue of uh, political infighting. And one has to recognize with some humility that the, the rhetorics of the populism has the enormous advantage of presenting solutions that are simple and easy to be uh, understood by the, the public opinion. They will not do the job. They will not make any difference. They will not solve the problems, but at least they are very easy to be understood 
by the public opinion. And our job, it requires much more sophistication in the way we approach the problems, and we find it much more difficult to explain it to the public, uh, to the public opinion. And that is also a challenge for us that uh, believe that, as Lydia said, that migration has positive impacts. It's not enough to say, to present the figures and say, you see the figures, they contribute more to the, the social security and to the economy that they get from social security. That's no longer enough. That's true. But that does not, will do not, not do the job. So we need to be capable, not just to demonstrate how wrong are the arguments against migration, but we also need to be much more effective in making the case for, first, the positive impacts of migration, and secondly, not hiding the challenges and the obstacles for migration. Because there are difficult issues that need to be tackled in terms of integration, in terms of uh, living together, in terms of the changing of the shape of the societies of destination. Those elements should not be hidden. We need to take them seriously and to demonstrate that the public policies and the mobilization of, of the civil society and of the private sector addresses those challenges in order to guarantee the security of the entire those different duet. <laughs> you have to have some significant disagreements in order for <laughs> the audience here and virtually whatever this thing is and to, to, to be satisfied that they had an argument. So I can't argue with anything that, um, that Antonio said. But I will make a couple of observations. Sometimes I'll start with something that I, I want to really emphasize, underline. We have to policymakers and people in debates have to really accept the fact that people experience immigration differently, which is extremely important because it shapes how they feel about immigration. And in addition to that, that it is very important for us to be talking with them, not at them. We cannot go around sort of thinking or saying like a, a short time prime minister of the UK said about eight or 10 years ago. And when I say eight or 10 years ago, you know, <laughs> we, we get that, we get that. We get that. <laughs> Yeah, who basically said that stupid woman and guess what the microphone was open and the stupid woman was somebody who was actually saying things that he didn't want to hear about immigration so it's important that we respect each other and it is important that we understand that people have different viewpoints because they experience migration differently Another point that I want to again underline, because these are important, critically important things. Legal pathways, more legal pathways. You should do that on its own merits. People say we should offer more scholarships, fellowships, you know, this and that, to students from over there, whatever the over there is. We should do this because it is smart. 
smart for the students, smart for the receiving society, because the lowest hanging fruit of immigration is indeed students who have studied in your own country, and they provide often, but we're not going to go there. And the, in addition to that, the, you know, they create an opportunity for those people who do stay, who do return to their homes to become the, you know, to create circles and, and positive uh, circles or cycles and sort of become an engine of change in their own country. These are all important things. These are all good things. But what Antonio said, if anybody thinks or tells you that somehow is doing so, and even doing so in a significant way, will somehow address the pressure for unauthorized immigration or reduce the number of people who want to come to a better country, I'm sorry, a country that in which they will have more opportunities, this is pretty downright wrong. This isn't going to happen because at least at this time, the number of people who want to move, who associate moving outwardly with moving upwardly, creating more opportunities for themselves, is infinite, ladies and gentlemen, infinite. We need to understand that, which means that we have to really begin to think differently about it and act differently. Um, the last thing is, also motivated by what, by what Antonio said, he talked about, let's say, the bottom half of the labor market, or the last third of the labor market. You know, people in agriculture, you know, all of these occupations that have long been abandoned by workers in rich societies. I came, I left Greece, God only knows, 50 plus years, 55 years ago, and it was a poor country. And the fishing industry was entirely foreign. In a poor country, all of these industries are gone. So, why don't we agree that there is a way to actually create opportunities and bring migrants that will do this work? And why do we not come up with systems that this organization has put on paper in the various commissions and other groupings that, we, that you know, MPI put together? Why don't we create opportunities for people to earn permanent status, but starting as temporary workers, temporary workers who are treated fairly with enforcement, with contracts that have teeth, and after and, you know, a number of years, these people can earn permanent status. I know why we cannot do these things in the United States, because that part of the labor market appears to be ungovernable. But there are many societies in Europe that actually invest much more in really regulating these labor markets. We need to be smarter about these issues. And if we get smarter over time, we're going to have better outcomes for everyone.
Dimitri. Um, I just want to explain what we're going to do with our final 14 minutes. Um, we're going to go to the future questions, and then I'm going to take um, a couple of questions from the audience. And also, I have some uh, coming in uh, through my phone. And if those of you watching from home would like to ask a question, you have three ways to do it. You can tweet at Migration Policy. You can ask it in the Zoom uh, chat box, um, or you can email events at migrationpolicy.org. So here's the, the future Z question. Um, how do we take forward some of this learning and experimentation from the pandemic um, and translate that into long-term strategic thinking? Um, and so for Dimitri, you know, how do you move beyond this short-termist thinking and build that strategic muscle? Um, even in countries like the United States, where you think that it's very hard. Um, and then for Antonio, I wondered if you could talk a little bit specifically about climate change, because I was, you know, very interested. We were all watching COP26 so, so closely. These high-level commitments are so different to the very rich operational work that IOM does. How do you marry some of that long-term futures vision with this learning that's happening at an operational level. Antonio, perhaps we can go to you first. Since I'm the, the first one, I, I will leave the future for the future. <laughs> and I will focus on the issue of climate change uh, because that has been a top priority for the IOM in this last uh, year. And uh, it will go on being a priority. Because we believe that uh, each time what we see in the field is that uh, uh, slow onset or, uh, uh, or natural or man-made uh, disasters linked with climate are each time more and more a driver for migration. And uh, for us, it is extremely important to address this challenge in a three-pronged approach. We do recognize that in some cases, migrate can be a coping strategy for, uh, related to climate uh, change. And therefore, it is necessary to see what are the uh, requirements for those people who, for instance, uh, live in a place that is going to be flooded and uh, it will not be possible to achieve more. But I always recall that when I was in Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh, a couple of months ago, I was told that there was a certain village in the, um, in the riverside that uh, was going to be flooded. The people of that village was displaced to another place, safer. They lived there for a couple of months, and then they decided to build houses on pillars in the primitive area where they had lived and they start living in a lacustre village as a reaction because they were so attached to the place where they were born and they were living that they decided not to move, but go back and adapt. And this is the question, adapt. Adaptation is going to be for, for us a crucial issue. For people who want to move, for people that are on the move, some people are on the move, like for instance, if you look to the Sahel, you have a devastating impact of salinization, of the scarcity of water. You have now less land available being disputed by uh, farmers and by herders. 
and it's necessary to create the conditions for the two communities to live together without tensions, which is not easy, but that is a consequence of the scarcity of the available land for their livelihood. And this is a situation where people are on the move because of climate change. And uh, last but not least, uh, in confronted with uh, the climate change, there is a need to build resilience in the communities to start preparing and adapting for what might happen in terms of impacts of uh, climate change. And these three prongs are for us our focus, not just a theoretical focus. We do it in practice. That's what we do. We are very much uh, working, whether in the Pacific Islands, whether in the Sahel, in uh, the coastal countries of uh, West, uh, West Africa. If you want, this is part also of the debate here in the US about what is happening in Central America, the impacts of the Rio Seco uh, area in the economies of the countries of, the, uh, of Central America, its impact on the production of coffee and of cocoa, and therefore the need for people to find alternative ways of living. So in, in this case, we work on the concrete, in concrete levels. And so our advocacy on the impact of climate change and uh, migration is very much based on what we see and what we do in practical terms. And I would like to emphasize that we welcome very much the recent report here in the US from the White House uh, about precisely uh, the impact of climate change in, uh, in migration. And, uh, and mobility in general, because it, it is absolutely necessary in our view to give visibility to this subject, because I, I have much respect for the debate about reduction emissions in 2030, Much respect, it's crucial, it's essential. But we should not forget that climate change is already changing the lives of people today, now. And to those, we need to find also and uh, COP26 did not give much preeminence to this point. It was very much about uh, uh, the reductions of emissions, the carbon market, the fossil fuel. But uh, I hope that we can build a coalition of goodwill for COP27, where the impacts of climate change in uh, livelihoods and in migration uh, will have the necessary attention in the framework of adaptation and mitigation. Um, while Dimitri answers his future's question, if um, anyone who is hoping to speak can raise your hands and then we can get a roving mic to you uh, efficiently. Dimitri, are we doing enough to plan for the future? <laughs> sure. <laughs> in fact, we have solved, we have solved so many problems today that if we kept this up until about 10 o'clock tonight, <laughs> the future Next will be time, the five hour panel. Five hour panel. <laughs> so, um, I will say four things. Not because Andrew said one minute, which is not, <laughs> which is not possible. It takes me a minute to clear my throat as you have. <laughs> but because I think it's important for us to be thinking about these terms. Can you hear me better back there? No. So and so. Lisa, what's going on? I mean, I'm told to keep it right here. Oh, do it this way. Oh well, my my arm, my arm will my arm will fall off. 
Um, some things that you know I am I continue to be concerned about. What five years ago used to be black swan events, you know, Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean 2015, 2016, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are now commonplace. And if we don't figure out how to not just prevent them, and I don't mean prevent them by force, to address, and that comes to the future and to climate change, to address them in a serious way by working with countries before conflict becomes endemic and then forces us to do nothing more than simply try to live and manage the consequences because people are going to be living in large numbers, then we're dead. The second one is we're seeing less and less logic in allowing the federal government, the central government, whatever you want to call it, make all immigration decisions. It won't work that way in the future. Devolution is the way that we're likely to manage this issue. So you're going to have your Barcelona, you know, making its own rules about, you know, benefits, who is a citizen, et cetera, et cetera, or for that matter, British Columbia or others, while the federal government, the central government will try to sort of create rules that apply to everyone. Think of what happened as a reaction to who was the last president that we had here? Okay, I know the name. <laughs> as a reaction to that, with a lot of cities, you know, basically saying, we're going to do these many things on our own. This is going to become more and more common. And it's not just Barcelona. I just use it as a single example. In the UK, it's not just federal governments. Okay? Unitary, or what we used to call, call unitary governments, are moving in that direction too. The third one is we have to to really commit to management of the migration issue, both in terms of our rhetoric and in terms of our actions. It matters a great deal that we come up with ways that we can manage migration better, much, much better than we do it. And last point, and this is a very difficult point, and I don't know if you were going to ask it or not. This connection between demography and migration is one of the most complicated questions, both in terms of policy and analytics. Everybody pretends that, you know, there is no connection or that the connection is linear. You know, when the United States Census Bureau announced that, you know, the, the fertility, total, total fertility, I don't want to bother you with all of these definitions, the total fertility rate went down to 1.8%, you need a little more than, you know, two uh, women having two children or adopting children from the outside or whatever in order to keep a steady population. The fact remains that everybody jumped on this. You know, ah, we have a demographic deficit. Let's bring immigrants. It doesn't work that way. Immigrants also age. And they also will do 
20 or 30 years from now, they will have the same needs. They will be accessing the same money, retirement money, etc., etc., and they will need the same services as everybody else. Why not take things a little more slowly? Yes, the immigration and immigrants will always be part of the answer. Always. But they're not going to be the answer to anything. And this is extremely important for us. To, I have stopped now. I'm not talking anymore. And this is where I break the rules and run over by a couple of minutes because we started late. Thank you. I think there's um, a question in the back and I can't see that far. So if you could introduce yourself, that would be wonderful. <coughs> Good afternoon. It is a pleasure to share with you today. I'm Juan Carlos Viloria Doria. I'm part of the more than 6 million Venezuelans who have to flee our country. I'm currently the president of Coalition for Venezuela. On behalf of our federation, I congratulate the MPI for its anniversary. Distinguished panelists, specialists, specialists, Mr. Antonio Vitorino, what do you think should be the role of organized civil society? How, has, um, how can IOM strength to contribute in host country? As a second question, it is possible. How can IOM ensure the protection of all people, especially migrants, in compliance with the global path for a safe, orderly, and regular migration? Uh, me, as all the migrants, we can contribute to the implementation of policies that will most effectively benefit our communities and also the host country. Great, thank, thank you. you so much. Antonio. Well, on, on the first point, uh, the answer is very straightforward. We have always insisted on the need to mobilize the Venezuelan diaspora to address the situation of the Venezuelan uh, displaced in the several countries in uh, Latin America. And uh, therefore, uh, the platform that we have together with UNHCR and uh, 159 organizations also include, of course, the contribution of the Venezuela diaspora to support the migrants and refugees that uh, have spread all over uh, Latin America. So the answer on that point is extremely positive, encouraging, and saying that they are part of the solution, and we appreciate their contribution. On 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 the first uh, on the first issue, I think that uh, we have seen to the situation the situation in Latin America, particularly uh, as a consequence of the Venezuela case, as an, an humanitarian emergency, and it is. But we need to start looking at it from a different perspective. Because quite a large number of those who have been displaced are now uh, confronted with the challenge of fully integrating in the host society. And that is a challenge not only for the displaced people, but also for the host communities. And some of the difficulties that we have found is that some rejection of the host communities to the displaced people is due to the fact that uh, the, uh, the ones who come, Venezuelans, represent an extra burden to the host communities in terms of access to social services. So the approach needs to be integrated in the sense that we cannot just confine ourselves to the support, the humanitarian support to the displaced people, 
but focus each time more and more the support to the host communities so that we can smooth the relationship uh, between ones who come and ones who uh, welcome uh, thank you and i hope you mind you don't mind if i skip you <laughs> we have a question over there is that alex i can't tell in your mask alex it is um alex lenikov um really interesting and congratulations FBI. um let me put it this way yes there will always be migration Yes, there will always be smuggling. Yes, borders will not work. I'm wondering if you can expand the context a little bit and why people are moving. And yes, they're moving because they're conditions. But I haven't heard a discussion of global inequality. It's really hard to think you can make progress on this event, on everything we're talking about, if there's not a serious effort to reduce the global inequality. In a world of a much more equal world, you wouldn't have these kinds of questions. And I'm just wondering how you can put that into your analysis. Antonio, you were talking about we need smart borders that work and we have to have border controls. But in a world that we live in, those kinds of borders inevitably become borders that preserve privilege for the countries that have and they keep people out who want to be here because they've been impoverished often by the countries that are trying to let's take a final word from both of you and if you could keep it extremely short and sweet i'm going to get into so much trouble already <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> that was short and sweet <laughs> alex as always a provocateur uh, which is a good thing but you and I are not going to live in a world where inequality will sort of be diminished enough to really make a difference. In fact, where will our children? So this may sound like a good way to sort of think about these issues as a thinking exercise, but as an exercise in reality, is something that I don't think makes any sense. Unless, of course, you are proposing the dismantling of nation states. And, you know, you could say that since the middle 17th century, what is that, 400 you know, uh, plus years, the Westphalian system, you know, had a good run at it. But it's not over, it's not likely to be over, and it is not likely to change dramatically without extraordinary people in the rich world. So for me, that's why we don't try, I don't try to, sorry. Antonio, do you want to say something? I do not address the issue of inequalities as a driver of migration, but I think that I was, I was sufficiently explicit in identifying the new inequalities that come out of the pandemic inequalities that have been exacerbated by uh, the pandemics and their impact in terms of mobility, in terms of more border controls, in terms of uh, possibility for, uh, for migration. Uh, I'm not saying that the border controls are the alpha and the omega of everything, but there is one thing we need to take into consideration. Border controls uh, play a role in reassuring the public opinion 
uh, of the existing countries, that those come into the country uh, are uh, authorized to come to the country. And uh, that is an important element in the narrative to make uh, migrants accepted by the host communities. Give the impression that everything is out of control, I think that the racist and the xenophobic reactions will be much So there are no magic solutions, but everything depends on the balance. And I think that border controls, the ones that I've tried to describe, are also part of a broader picture that we need to work in. Thank you, Antonia. Thank you, both of you, for being so disciplined in your final answer. So for MPI's 30th anniversary, we will schedule two hours for these wonderful thinkers and speakers. Thank you so much to both of you. This has been a fantastic um, discussion. Thank you.